0: And welcome to the Weekly Hoon. I am Bernard Hickey for the Kaka. And it's great to have you all back uh, here for our lap around the world of geopolitics with Peter Bale. Um Peter, Hi Bernard, Good to how
1: see are you? you. Hi, Bernard. I, just, I was just saying I'm, I'm wearing my Zelensky T-shirt again.
0: Yeah, no, it's 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 not quite the right shade of olive, I think, unless oh, really? you zoom. Oh,
1: thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I, I have got a camouflage one, which I'll try to wear next week if you like.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, he must have done wonders for the color of olive around the world, right, uh, right now. Um, and uh, as you can see um, from our panelists uh, above, um, we have a couple of special guests. At the start, um, we have Natalia Chabin, who is. A professor at University of Canterbury and uh, is an expert on um, political communications, EU foreign policy. It's fantastic to have you again, Natalia. And Robert Patman, um, a professor of international relations at University of Otago has just joined us. Um, thank you again, both for coming in. Uh, it's fantastic. And we'll we'll find out a lot more about what's happening around the world. And Peter, could you please introduce our special new guest?
1: Yes, I want to introduce Elaine Monaghan, who's a professor of practice at the journalism school at the um, University of Indiana in Bloomington. And Elaine and I are old colleagues from Reuters, uh, as is Bernard. And Elaine has a, a very long history in uh, Eastern Europe as a correspondent. She was the bureau chief in uh, Kiev and Minsk, and she served in the Moscow bureau. Um, interestingly, she was also the or well, is also the wife of the former American ambassador to Poland. Uh, a role in which she was quite controversial and not afraid of. Um, she she was certainly not the glamorous glamorous um, uh, arm candy that you sometimes get with ambassadors. She she was quite prepared to stick her neck out, and I'm, I'm sure she's prepared to do that um, do that here as well. Um, I, I, Elaine is in in. The, in, in co- talking to us from Bloomington, Illinois. So it is midnight where she is. Um, I did say, Robert, I'm extremely concerned that we've got three academics with us today because as you know, we have a... There's, 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 there's never a talking deficit, but there's often a competence deficit in the things that we talk about, but but not this time with, with not, you guys yeah. there. So it's really interesting to have you all there. And, and Bernard didn't quite say so to the, to the lovely audience, but we're going to uh, have a slot at the very end as well with Delipa Fonseca from Stuff, who's going to talk to us about some of his recent work on Bernard's favorite topic which is housing uh, I do not expect Elaine uh, although Robert Robert's quite happy to comment on virtually anything else he's a bit of a he's a bit of a polymath as well as being a well, um, I hope a he's a, I hope he's
0: a Dunedin property investor
1: yeah absolutely yeah no, it's, um yeah it, it, yes uh, so I thought we might start with Elaine since she's since she's the new person does that work for you Bernard if we yes that'd be great yeah. So, Elaine, I think, you know, you you have a number of interests in this in this story. We've been, you know, in, in your current professional life, you're all about trust and journalism ethics, but also about data journalism. And one of the things that's happened this week uh, is this, you know, been another breakthrough in what people call uh, OSINT journalism, which is open source investigative journalism using satellite imagery and so on. And that's how we know Um Oh, excuse me, somebody's accusing me of being sexist here with attractive women are arm, can, arm candy. Well, I was just I was meaning in the sense that um, Elaine was not afraid to court controversy and be more than that, which is there's nothing wrong with arm candy, of course. It's a, it's a wonderful expression. Ether That's is what.
0: my arm candy.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just going to go out and get a, de- a deeper shovel to or sharper shovel <laughs> to give myself an even, an even bigger hole here. But. Elaine, tell us a little bit about this open source intelligence gathering and what you think that means. I mean, it's it's been pretty critical to finding out what went on, what really went on in Booker. And I see we have another um, purported uh, center of war crimes again today. Just Tell us how that works a little bit, please.
2: Sure. Yeah. Um. It's okay, Peter. I'll, I'll let you off the hook there. But I will not let you off the hook for saying that I'm in Bloomington, Illinois, because I'm in Bloomington, Indiana. Indiana.
1: I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I do
2: A forgive you. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, don't worry. You're not the first person doing that mistake, and you're not going to be the last. Um. Anyway, yeah. No, to answer that excellent question, I mean, of course, I am sort of agog, and um, completely obsessed with all of this amazing technology that all of our colleagues are using and you know of course I'm a little bit old school because when I think back to covering Kosovo you know the way that we verified what had been happening inside Kosovo as refugees came into Albania Mm. was literally by standing at the border and asking them questions the old-fashioned way and that of course is a huge part of what's going on with the you know the verification process for what's happening in Ukraine as well because we have this enormous Flood of refugees coming out who are obviously providing their recollections and eyewitness accounts. But the what you're talking about, the satellite imagery I mean, the the sort of there's lots going on, but the image that sticks in my head is of the the satellite um, shots of blobs on the street Mm -hmm. to just be blobs, but of course. Now that we also have the ground level imagery, the photographs and the eyewitness accounts and these awful stories by survivors and witnesses talking about these killings, we now know that these um, images that we're seeing represent the bodies of people who were killed. And the one that I think really, I think probably most of us have seen and that's sick in my head is the one of this person turning the corner on a bicycle. Yes. Being, but that, that,
1: interestingly, the- that video was not from a satellite, obviously, it was from a drone.
2: And right, it'd be interesting very, to
1: yes. know whose who's drone it was, what it was doing there, you know, <laughs> quite, but, it, but it, you know, clearly now these kind of extraordinary Soviet style obfuscations and talk of hysteria and, yeah. um, you know, making it all up are disabused by the, by the facts that we now have. And, and this, of course, happened with the shooting down of um, the Malaysian airliner MH17 a few years ago, which Bellingcat, of course, identified You know exactly where it had come from, which book missile launcher had carried it, and then where the uh, book missile um, launcher had gone to and come from. I mean, do, do you think that this is changing journalism or changing the role of journalism because it was very interesting the other day the new york times did some excellent work on this which really just blew out of the water any idea that this was a a fake incident
2: certainly i think that the ability of this technology to show audiences how we do our work and i think in a way when you're using visuals like this that's pretty much what's going on it's like a visualization of the verification process in that sense i think it is changing And the way not only how we do our reporting, but also how audiences perceive our reporting, because there's an immediacy, an immediacy to it that is not there when it's just words on the page. Yeah. Is is there a danger
1: that we then become too engaged in it, that, that it then becomes part of journalistic process and then the journalists become even more deeply engaged in this conflict than they already are?
2: That's an interesting question. Um, so, so you're asking, is it harder to have distance from the process? Yes, from- and
1: and does it does it make you then, you know, because the kinds of, the kinds of investigation that this that this stuff is doing in real time is the sort of thing one previously might have got from the Organisation for Security of Cooperation in Europe or the War, right. Tri- War Crimes Tribunal or some sort of official source. I mean, I'm pretty sure, based on the intelligence we've seen so far. That the United States knows exactly what is happening in virtually every square inch inch in Ukraine at the moment, and quite clearly, quite a bit of Russia as well. But this well, this I'm- puts the journalistic task very much in the centre of you know we it's been kind of decided because of facts that Bukha happened when it happened and was committed and that these acts were committed by who they were committed by.
2: Well, I thought it was interesting. I I was listening, thanks to your excellent newsletter, I was listening to the BBC's Ukraine podcast earlier, and I was very struck by how careful the correspondent, Kay, was was in describing the work as not being definitive in its finding, but in indicating certain things. I thought that was terribly important and very reassuring. Um, And I suppose, in a way... I suppose the hazard is that we kind of turn ourselves into forensic anthropologists and that's not what we are.
1: Correct. Yeah. I
2: I kind of wonder whether actually we need to really have a coming together of anthropologists and journalists. Oh
1: my God. More academics talking to journalists. No, thank you. (laughs) Well, you
2: know, I mean,
1: (laughs) Natalia, do you you, find our
2: ethical standards somehow? I don't know, but I I feel like there's a dialogue that needs to happen there given what we're doing, you know, and and, and certainly I, I do worry about it's becoming too technical and, too much expert in areas where we've no real expertise really but I, I guess it's changing and
1: yeah yeah and I want to be careful that this doesn't this that, that this doesn't become a, a conversation about journalistic <laughs> methods rather than about Sorry. about the conflict but I, I think also it's you know very important uh and I tried to do it again a little bit in that newsletter uh we have to be journalists can't use words like genocide and war crimes they can say other, they can, you know, they can attribute that idea to other people. But you know, genocide is a very specific um, claim, uh, which which I'd like to go into a little bit more if we have if we have time today. Having mm-hmm. having read uh, Philippe Sands' book East West Street, which I'm, I'm sure you have, which is fantastic on this t- topic, and and in fact, origin, the term originates from uh, a, a, a Ukrainian Jewish or Polish Jewish which was then person from Lviv. But anyway, we can talk about that on another day. You've you spent a lot of time in Ukraine and uh, Belarus, um, Elaine. What's your sense of what's happened really since you were there? You know, we, and and how Putin might see Ukraine. I mean, he's 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 nullified its very existence. He argues that the Orange Revolution was a coup. You know, what's 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 changed there? You've gone from a pro pro Russian. Uh, president at one stage you've got you know oligarchs there it's it's a it's a very murky it would be in a very murky place between now and when you were there
2: right I mean to answer your question of how does Putin see Ukraine I mean uh, one thing to say is he doesn't see it as a country Mm. and he clearly doesn't see its people as humans he has worked very hard to dehumanize them or he and his supporters have and that's obviously part of the the strategy here um and I mean, obviously he's he's hearkening back to historical justifications for his behavior, but it seems quite clear that those historical justifications are just excuses, at least in my mind. Um, and that there's a sort of a, a an almost an inevitability to, to me anyway, it feels like an inevitability to what's happening um, that, you know, he does not see Ukraine as a separate entity in any way, even though, you know, there's lots of reasons to believe that it is. In fact, we had um, the U- the U.S. former ambassador to Ukraine here in Indiana this week at a conference, and he was making the point that you know at the time when you know Kiev was the kind of this great cultural center, Kiev Ruth, um, you know, Moscow was a forest mm. back in the 11th century. And I'm sure that's not a point that you know President Putin really wants to have repeated, but that is the truth. So, um, you know, there, he, he sees it as a as a barrier between himself and. This you know, NATO alliance that he's portraying as, a, as, a, as a, a, an aggressive alliance, um, and so, and not as a country and not as a people.
1: But is, is there any truth? I mean, you have a little bit of an insight into this that a lot of other people wouldn't have, some of which I'm, you probably can't, can't tell us, but, uh, but by all means do. Um, you know, the Americans were heavily involved in promoting, supporting uh, Biden, went, I recall, during the, during the Orange Revolution. Um, you know, in which in which the pro-Russian president president of that time was overthrown, uh, in which, as you will recall, the, the, the opposition candidate was poisoned by the Russians, which is, as usual, a, a fabulous uh, and interesting and evil method to use. Do, do, does the United States and NATO have any culpability, in your view, for having uh, supported democracy so, so strongly in Ukraine, let alone the issue of pushing NATO up against the borders of, this, of, of Russia?
2: So I mean, this is one of these debates that, like, you know, as not a historian, <laughs> I feel like it's very perilous ground for me to walk on. Um, I mean, my, you know, my instincts, my journalistic instincts, on the basis of having lived in Ukraine and and been a student in Belarus, believe it or not, but also covered the rise to power of Lukashenko, and you know, and I was in Poland from, I should be clear, from two thousand nine to two thousand twelve. Um, and did you did you personally
1: it, engineer engineer the you know the entire yeah, su- totally the NATO arrangement for support of I bet All you did. Yeah.
2: Yeah. No, I mean you'll be not surprised to hear that the ambassador's wife gets to hear about precisely nothing. Right. <laughs> so um Well you I, were just arm candy as we share. discussed, but yeah. <laughs> no secrets to share, um, but I, you know, um, and I've now forgotten what the question was. Um, but I, I, I mean, the, is there cul- any? Is there
1: any? Does the do the Americans? Do you are think? They do is, is there anything in what Putin says about these being American instigated, uh, an, an American instigated revolution? I mean, I've been as far as in, in places like Cambodia, they've bought into this whole coloured revolution idea. Um, you know, the Chinese talk about it, uh, and then you've got this question of whether. Hubris after the fall of communism led the Americans to push NATO too close, and to be and to be, to be hubristic rather than generous with with Russia after the fall of communism.
2: Right. No, I mean I, I've had these it, these arguments that you know, well, we could have been a bit nicer when we mm. won. Um, you know, it's. Oh, it's feel like well is it was there wasn't really a winner and a loser there was like an end to that process at least that's how it seems to me um and and i think that you know it's a bit sort of easy to say well we just cornered him i mean you know i'm sure there's an element of truth to that and everything that putin says like the brilliance of his of his lies is that there's always a kernel of truth in them Hmm. which is true also of all of the disinformation that works that we see on social media there's always a kernel of truth in it um but i don't really think that there's a you can really draw a line from there to what has actually happened with the invasion. I mean, it's an incredible attack.
1: And, and um, what about the reaction of places like like Poland? Because you know, I, I I recall Poland practically you know leaping into NATO. Romania certainly did, and yes, there was a certain amount of American pressure, but there was also some caution. You know, they had they had to go through quite a lot of hoops. Um, but my, you know, my recollection is that is that the the um, Czechoslovakia as then was before it split into. Poland and Romania were absolutely desperate to join NATO because they knew what it was like. They knew what it was to live next to Russia.
2: Right. And I think, you know, living in the shadow of Russia, well, now now we understand. I mean, one one of the things that struck me recently in the last sort of few days has been, as you'll recall, when we had this terrible plane crash, which happened while I was living in Poland, um, of which, in which the the president of Poland was killed, and many other very important figures in Polish uh, culture and, and well, you know, Polish um, government at the time, um, and a lot of Poles were suspicious that the Russians had brought the plane down, and there's ab- no reason to believe that that is in fact the case. But looking back now, is you know, it's impossible not to feel a great deal of sympathy with that position, given what we've now seen, what Russia has done in Ukraine. So, I mean, there's lots of historical reasons for people to fear the absolute worst possible outcome. And, you know, the Polish friends are obviously very worried about what might happen next. Um, and you can understand why.
1: Robert, what, maybe you could come in on this, because you know, you've you addressed some of these questions before. But maybe just, you know, we've probably got a few people who weren't on in some of your earlier sessions. Yeah. What, what about this question of whether Russia was pushed into this position over, you know, the last three decades of humiliation
3: and so on? No, I don't think so. I mean, certainly it's been a very strong narrative from Yeltsin through to Putin and particularly after 2007, after Putin spoke at the Munich Security Conference, that uh, NATO expansion um was the cause of many of Russia's security problems, including the Ukraine, but of course, NATO expansion was not driven by the United States. It was driven by the countries of Eastern Europe, and even in the build-up to this current, in, you know, full-scale invasion that we've unfortunately witnessed in the last five weeks, um, it was interesting that the week before the full invasion, you know, sources in Moscow were still quoting NATO aggression as being the heart or NATO expansion as being at the heart of the Ukraine problem. But, you know, look at Russia's actions. It's If it, if Mr. Putin had succeeded in his blitzkrieg strategy of overrunning the country in three days, which, of course, he didn't, thankfully, he um, would have actually taken Russia's borders closer to NATO. Mm. And NATO has been a complete red herring as far as i concern. concerned. I think Mr. Putin perceived a threat in the Ukraine. He said it was a security threat, but it wasn't. It was a threat, a political threat to his authoritarian regime. Uh, the last thing he wanted on his doorstep, in my view, was a vibrant democracy, which was actually developing links with the Western world. Because he knew, he he, he saw what happened in Kazakhstan with the protests there mm-hmm. and the protests in Belarus. And of course, you can just imagine the alarm bells going in Putin's Kremlin. He must have just been so worried that unless he smothered the democratic government in ukraine he could be faced at some point in the not too distant future with protest movements in moscow and um, ironically he may have accelerated that process in the long run by taking the action that he has so and also, yeah, and al- yep.
0: and also possibly strengthened uh, nato i wanted to ask if you've a few of your panelists about whether now nato becomes much stronger more Uh, militarily muscular. And in particular, I hear some talk that uh, Sweden and Finland may formally apply to join NATO in the next few, um, few weeks. Robert, do do you have a a view on that? Uh,
3: I think it's highly likely. Um, Yeah, Mr. Putin has actually created the very environment he didn't want by his actions. And It's interesting that countries like Finland and and, um, Sweden feel sufficiently alarmed by Russia's actions um, to actually want to join NATO. And I think that's going to happen. And so in a sense, um, Mr. Putin's actions will contribute to the further expansion of NATO. And so, yeah, I mean, um, there may be a few people in his inner circle who may be scratching their heads about this. They may be saying, you know, has the boss got it wrong? I don't know, but at some point there's going to have to be, particularly when the the number of casualties that Russia has taken in the Ukraine was it more than eighteen thousand, mm. according to recent reports coming from Ukraine and NATO, that is extraordinary. I mean, and, and they, more
1: than they lost, and more than they lost in the entire Afghanistan.
3: Yeah, absolutely, adventure. Peter. And there's no, you can't. Okay, yes, they're they're putting across a very strong narrative about the moment how this is all fake news about the war crimes and all this. But at some point. Reality uh, is going to break through this now. Uh, just the sheer losses that will affect Russian families. Um, N- Natalia,
1: I, how do you just forgive me, but Robert, how, how do you no, see no. this playing out? I you mean, you, we haven't had you on for a couple of weeks. The story's moved along substantially. Uh, uh, sorry to call it a story, but the events have moved along substantially. You've now also got, you know, pretty clear evidence of, 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 you know, what may well be found to be war crimes on both sides. Of course, we had this, this, this video of these other incidents of what appear to be Georgian. The Georgian battalion shooting, uh, on, which is on the Ukrainian side, but the battalion from Georgia shooting uh, uh, Russian prisoners of war, which is, you know, perhaps a different degree to what we've seen in Bukha and now other places. How, how do you think the the story of this war is progressing, given your both personal expert uh, interest and expertise?
4: Well, i just want very quickly to add in support point by robert that nato excuse was just an excuse because russia is already or the russian federation is already bordering nato countries <laughs> it's bordering uh, the united states on the far east um, it's yeah. bordering turkey and bulgaria on the black sea and in kaliningrad enclave it borders many nato states so um that the the argument that the NATO will come closer with Ukraine, it's really non non-sus, non sustainable. If you remember, in two thousand seven, Putin offered himself that Russia will become the member of NATO, and then um, he was told that it's such a big procedure. He, the Russian Federation doesn't meet the requirements. As such, he was taken aback by the fact that such a great offer was not processed in a. In a normal way. So, if you think um, you're saying that there is sort of NATO, the, the Russian Federation itself was toying with an idea of being part of that particular alliance. So, the, the story is much more complicated. There are more levels to the story. And um, we know that just recently NATO had its uh, meeting in which they've just discussed they need to revise their doctrine on the relationship with Russia and the Mm -hmm. formulation that NATO and the Russian Federation are not adversaries. So there is a change of narrative coming from NATO at this particular point. And I'm still on a NATO note because I have a very good friend who is an academic in Sweden. You can invite him if you want. Time difference is not too bad um, since you like academics. uh, (laughs) We
1: love academics. Roasted over a slow flame.
4: (laughs) And um, uh, for Sweden, it's quite a a sensitive issue because they have their own political situation in the country and their current government is not in favor of NATO, but now they're thinking about it. So it's actually opening several Pandora boxes in in Finnish and Swedish society. So something to watch, but you're absolutely right. uh, So Robert, I I support your point about this. So uh, in terms of the the second question, uh, the one you asked me, Peter, Um, I've just recently heard a very in-depth interview by one of the Ukrainian lawyers who who is talking that, and if you remember Zelensky is a lawyer too, Mm. who is saying that if we're talking about any atrocities, everything needs to be documented. And they need, there are teams and teams of lawyers and investigators who are trying to work with bodies. It's a huge, it's, it's a job which demands huge human resources, but they really want to be very thorough about documenting for the future trials, for the future mm. international um, community. And um, the, the it was really eye-opening to see that legal side of the story. We're talking about pictures, emotions, rationality, but I think there is a strong push from the Ukrainian government to have it according to the uh, legal or law requirements, that then mm-hmm. in the future, we we have proper documentation and, uh, and the things could be taken on a different level. In legal-
1: I, I, I wonder if I mean, actually, it's probably a, a question for, for Elaine, because uh, but uh, either of you or any of the three of you is very happy to come come back, please. The things we've seen in Booker and the things we're seeing elsewhere. Uh, labels like the Wagner group, the group of mercenaries, and you know, apparently the Wagner group soldiers were near Booker. They were involved, I think, last week or last month in the killing of 300 people in Mali. Um, I've written quite a bit about the, the the Wagner group. You know, you're getting some pretty um, sordid uh, actors going in there. Not just you know 20 year old, 20 year old Russian recruits who were expected to have flowers put into the end of their rifles. Um, you know, this is this is real kind of arbitrary. Not just arbitrary, actually. It's a it's it's, it's worse than arbitrary because it is about scaring the, um, the, the 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 civilian populace. And do, do you have a view on? Who's who's doing this, or whether it's just general Russian uh, doctrine?
2: I'm very hesitant to answer that. Too Go on, in, dive in. Without being on the ground, I mean, I I guess what I would say is, it's I always believe in the theory of chaos, and in the in, in the screw up theory before I believe in anything else. And I and I just on the basis of everything I've heard, it's clear that there are kind of. Lots of clueless young Russian soldiers, I'm sure, out there doing the things that I've seen them do, you know, that have led to, you know, awful outcomes. I mean, in in Chechnya, you know, I, I covered stories about Russian soldiers' bodies coming back and, you know, just devastating. But then, you know, the presence of these other kind of types of forces definitely change the narrative Um, and I I guess that's part of the the puzzle is identifying who's responsible for these individual killings as well as the different clusters of killings that you're seeing everywhere and I'm I'm sure we'll we'll get to hear narratives of you know um, instances of soldiers coming into contact with local people and a complicated story emerging from that scenario um, and at the same time, instances of just absolute sheer brutality. And yeah, I must admit, with, with some
1: experience on Chechnya, I'm, I'm very concerned to see what happens with Kadyrov's forces there because they, they remind me of Arkan uh, and his, and his uh, Serbian tigers during, this, during the Yugoslav campaign, where you have these kind of, not just soldiers of fortune, but almost kind of week, weekend thugs who
3: are out there and really will stop at nothing. Peter, yeah. I, I, I take on all what Elaine is saying that, you know, there may be a degree of chaos and, you know, let's be quite frank, um, ill-disciplined troops who haven't been fed properly and all this sort of thing. But I think there's a bit of central direction here. In your weekly newsletter, you quote, quoted a very disturbing novice piece, um, and uh, that's not a one-off. There's been, unfortunately, um, uh, you know, on the state TV, Channel One, Vladimir Solofyov, mm-hmm. uh, he uh, a nationalist and also a propagandist. And he said uh, in an extraordinary outburst that's on YouTube that many people can watch that um, uh, a ceasefire would be a betrayal in Ukraine and that it's up to the troops to kill as many people as possible. And this is going out on the Sunday evening, prime time Moscow time. And in addition, um, ukrainian um, intelligence have picked up conversations between tank yeah. crews in which they are asking moscow for guidance confronting civilians they're being told and it's all recorded kill them so you know um, i mean I, I i fully take into account that the fog of war there'll be there'll be bad things happening on all sides but it does seem a degree of central direction and methodical and systematic i mean let's take the missiling of um ukrainian suburbs that's yeah. when my alarm bells went up i know they did this in grozny but of course mr putin said from the outset this is uh, the ukrainians are russians but this was a funny way to react if you really believe they were part of the russian nation mm. because it seemed to me it was a grozny sort of scenario where no. you were just Imposing sheer force. Just, just, but by, by way of some fairness here, not well, fairness is the wrong word to use.
1: Tell us about the Azov Battalion, Elaine. What's that all about? And you know, because they are, they are the kind of uh tip of this spear of there being Nazis in Ukraine.
2: I mean, I. want to say just i don't want to dismiss it as a red herring because obviously you know there's been a lot of research done into this group and it's not you know they have you know symbols that are neo-nazi symbols there's a certain ideological element to all of that that is really troubling um and you know thousands of people have flocked to that but you know since 2014 it's it's I think it's fair to say that that those roots have become much less significant than the bigger point that it's a successful fighting force that people have been drawn to at mm-hmm. least for that reason um you know and the historical um you know charges of anti-semitism and you know not the sort of you know um collaboration with nazi forces and 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 what's now ukraine are of course True, I mean that happened. Um, but it doesn't it but it's being used as a justification for this attack on an entire country. So I just yeah. Could I you, um sorry, could
0: go I go Could I could I jump in here and, and just ask Natalia, given the discussion about uh, evidence of war crimes, um what do you know about uh how the evidence has been collated and documented in Ukraine, um, you mentioned some lawyers that were involved, and um, how much uh, other countries' intelligence services could help in documenting what went on. I, I say this n- knowing that uh, Five Eyes uh, was reported this week to be uh, collating all of its um satellite and uh, um, uh, radio intercept um, techn- uh, intelligence to collate and hand over to the Ukrainians from Five Eyes. What are you hearing on that documentation process and also how it's um, playing into the morale inside uh, Ukraine? Is it strengthening the resolve? Is it creating outrage? What's, what, what are you seeing? Yep.
4: So first of all, we have a situation when it's not just lawyers, but the Office of Attorney General, Venediktova, who is uh, taking care of what happened in Bucha and Erpiny and Hastomel and Trostenets. It's it's not just Bucha. Bucha became a symbol, but there are more of these places. And um, the scale of devastation, the scale of tragedy, the mass graves, there is a lot of work, just even physical work. Imagine... Um, people who work with uh, bodies which have been decomposing for some time uh, to identify them, to document the, the when there is one person who is dead and how, just think how much police spends time about identifying the cause of death, what is proper documentation. <clears throat> now we have hundreds, hundred, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in, in, in this situation and their bodies needs to be. So there is a, a huge work done by the Office of Attorney General, as again mentioned, there is that very strong commitments to legality Uh, we started our conversation with open intelligence sources and uh, at the moment there is a request to to all citizens of those towns to submit any footage they have on their Mm -hmm. phones to the authorities this is open intelligence sources people make and then it comes to what elaine mentioned is forensics and um including, seeing see in question, there is a question about Bellingcat, is one of the companies, there are several of those companies who are piecing information together from open sources, from phones, from, and um, they make conclusions, and they, it's not only satellite imagery or drone imagery, it's also phones. And, for example, during bombardments, when Ukrainian cities were hit, Ukrainian authorities asked people not to show and not put videos Online, because they would help um, Russian R- Russian Federation troops to recalibrate the hits, and people were listening. And this is something important that there is this realization of power of open sources that it could actually help, but it actually um, could could damage. And um, yeah, um, I just wanted to mention an example. of, it's not the new tactic: white helmets in Syria we're using it doctors running with the helmets and filming and they were actually uh, hunted down because the yeah. other side didn't want all this information but i just wanted to stress again there is call to citizens there is call to the office of attorney general there is hundreds of international journalists when vilensky went to butcher he took with him hundreds of international journalists that you know exactly for these purposes to uh, to do de- to decrease the degree of misinformation mis- yeah, which
1: the which which the russians then turned into into making it look as though it was some sort of media circus um right. bernard do you, you want yeah, to yeah
0: just just one question for all the panelists who have you know thought about um how history plays out over the years i just wonder i'm i've i'm a, i love reading books about um the history of world war ii and how it's changed the Um, changed the landscape and not just the physical landscape, this sort of diplomatic, political, economic landscape of the whole world since the end of Second World War. And I just remember um, how uh, explosive the revelations about the killings of Polish soldiers in Caton Wood were Mm. uh, during the Second World War. Um, How uh, it seems that through the um, the work of the crypto- cryptob- cryptographers in Britain and America, um, the leadership there in the Second World War were aware of some of these things, uh, um, but they weren't widely distributed for, for obvious reasons. They didn't want to um, expose their then ally, uh, Russia, in the war. But we're in a different situation now where evidence of atrocities is available you know, a day or two for yeah. everyone in the world to see. And it changes the, you know, the, the dynamics of how things play out. Um, for example, in the Second World War, if the entire world had known immediately about the concentration camps, can you imagine what that would have done for the political environment in the United States, for example, or the rest of the world? Um, uh, yeah, there is, of course, uh, an
1: argument that they did. But anyway, carry on.
0: No, well, it's interesting. So, Robert, um, uh, you would have looked at this sweep of history. How do you think this immediacy and this knowledge that everyone gets almost immediately about these sorts of things might change the way it all plays out? Because back in the day, you know, this information was controlled to to try and uh, suit the needs of the various players. But sometimes these things get out of hand, if you like.
3: Yeah, I agree with the observation you made that I, I think that if you look at the the invasion the russian invasion of ukraine i think um the revelations that we the shocking revelations the appalling knowledge that we've gleaned about atrocities has actually changed um the dynamics of how to handle this and, and possibly the outcome because what you know when we had started talking about this conflict a few weeks ago we i think one of the questions from the audience was quite like how can there'll be an off ramp for Putin. He's obviously made a mistake, he's miscalculated. He's made a colossal strategic error. He's living in an information bubble. He's got it wrong. Uh, How can he be given a way out? So there was a lot of discussion like that. And I think Mr. Macron and others also for a while still toyed with that idea. But I think the shocking information that we've got about Butcher, but also possibly from Mariupol, I, I understand that that's even worse with maybe 5,000 civilians being possibly dead there, it seems to me that views are now hardening and that the view is that actually there can't be a diplomatic solution involving Mr Putin and that he has to be defeated. That
1: seems to be the bottom line to what, I mean, I, I, I thought it was very unwise of Biden to talk about Putin not being able to stay in power and very unwise of him to call him a war criminal. And yet he probably is, Speaking from a kind of brutal reality or a kind of naive
3: reality, in a way, I think with Peter, he's speaking with a great deal of knowledge than many of us have because mm. of the obviously a, a very good intelligence that the Ukrainians have, the uh, the Ukrainian government has, and also many Europeans have, and the Americans have. I mean, the intelligence has been mind blowing for the reasons we've gone through the technological ability, but also human intelligence, not just the tech, not not just the you know the fantastic ability of technical surveillance via satellites, but also human intelligence. They probably got people very highly placed in Moscow. And it seems to me that they knew the Americans have been, and Biden said this, he said, expect genocide. He used that word. He expect severe repression. I think he corrected himself to a severe repression. So what's happened in Butcher is not a complete shock to um You know, the Americans and I suspect to some of the other people, the other nations backing Ukraine in this struggle. And I think I think these revelations have made it very different. I think many people would be disgusted if Mr. Putin and Mr. Putin was allowed to claim some sort of victory. Mm. And I think the view in NATO now is and indeed, I'm sure it is in Ukraine. that given what's happened and what we've learned of the Russian occupation in the areas they've been that nothing less than a military defeat and the the ejection of Russian troops from Ukraine. uh, you know, that that is the minimal, the bottom line at the moment, I think. I think so. In other words, to answer your question, Bernard, I think, you know, we've seen quite a a shift in Mm. um, visions of outcomes for this conflict now.
0: Uh, just talking to um, Natalia, uh, do you think that the mood inside Ukraine has hardened as well? Um, in that you know, there's been a lot of talk from Zelensky about peace talks. He wanted to meet up with Putin. The suggestion they would they would you know not apply again for NATO membership. Even the idea maybe that some small parts of eastern Ukraine could be given up. Do you think inside Ukraine itself that there is much harder a much harder view along the lines of push them right out of um ukraine and no deals whatsoever
4: well if you look at the ukrainian commentators there is definitely um a very kind of solidified strength and um firmness in um in, in sort of re- let's th- there's sort of no way way back this is this is we cross some in that sort of like butcher signified a completely new a um, step or a different period in in the war. What was before Butcher? It was sort of one, but after Butcher, it was such a, such a such a change in attitude inside Ukraine. The the Western reaction also affirmed, um, new sanctions appeared. Um the, the what what people inside Ukraine see is there is more support around the world, more compassion, um, more understanding, and um the 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 whatever negotiation is needed at some point. We still have cities in difficult situations where people need to get out. So there are two different levels of negotiations: negotiations sort of on an everyday basis. There still needs to save civilians to have green corridors to agree to agree at least in principle that there is no shooting, even when know that these green corridors are violated again and again. Uh, but on the other side, there is this conversation that Zelensky and Putin should meet. But I think this is sort of a faraway goal. I don't think this is at the moment such a such a big priority. But I think we need to. Rem- I just was when you were speaking, I thought it's important to to remember. There is the first sign that potential there are cracks inside the the, the Russian establishment and um, Kadyrov's reaction to. Piskov's um, speech. I'm Piskov, the press secretary, mm-hmm. who uh, was talking about Urgant, um, TV uh, One host of the evening talk show, Daily Talk Show. Urgant left Russia, but Piskov called Urgant a patriot, a true patriot. At the same time, he didn't congratulate Kadirov becoming a general lieutenant. To which Kadyrov replied that um, some true patriots are not even recognized. We mm-hmm. need to take care of it. At the same time, Girkin, uh, who is the um, who is that military leader of the Donetsk Republic, so-called Donetsk Republic, uh, started talking that um, we need to call things how they are. It is the war. We need mobilization, and we need to squash Ukraine. The, the, the mm-hmm. And so this is literally happening in the in the recent days, and we are seeing there is a change in rhetoric uh, there between different factions of the establishment in the Russian Federation.
1: Elaine, may I ask you? I'm going to go do a quick fire in a second between the the, the three um, experts, Dalipra. I'm not going to turn you into an expert about Ukraine just yet. Uh, although I'm sure you'd, I'm sure you'd probably do at least as well as Bernard and I would do. Um, <laughs> Elaine, what's the mood and what what from your position in uh, in Indiana? What's the what's the what's the level of support do you believe in the United States with high gas prices and so on? And how's it playing out there? Is, is there support for this?
2: that's a very good question I mean I think th- I was just as you were discussing this I was thinking about you know has it is this going to change things and honestly I'm I think I'm a bit pessimistic in a way um because you know people will not believe things when they're right in front of their noses if it doesn't suit them um and I'm, and I'm thinking back to the very first at the beginning of the war I was in a medical facility waiting for an appointment and I was Listening, you know, listening in on other people's conversations and what they were saying was, "What do we care about Ukraine? Mm. Why do we care if Russia's invaded Ukraine?" And and I think that you know it's going to be hard to sustain, um, you know, support for that over time. Um, so yeah, sorry, I think I'm a little pessimistic. Okay, that.
1: no worries. And um, all right, so I think Robert for this one, what are the possible end states for this conflict? Is it is it feasible for Uh, Russia to turn its attention to Donbas, and then stop. This is from Sargon.
3: Um, I think that's the intention, but I I think we've just had a meeting of NATO foreign ministers and also the Ukrainian foreign minister, and we understand heavy weaponry is going to be transferred uh, very rapidly. Uh, I think the feeling is that the Ukrainians have demonstrated they're extremely competent, they've outgunned, uh, or they've certainly outfought the Russians in the Ukraine, and uh, with probably limited, uh, you know, less resources. And I think there's a feeling they've got to be given more support. Interestingly, I agree with what Elaine's saying about the American situation. But I think America's a little bit of, if I may say so, of an outlier in that I think other countries have become increasingly sensitized that they have a stake in this. In New Zealand, for example, the initial reaction was, oh, that's a conflict, you know, thousands of miles away <laughs> from where we are. And it's tragic, and we sympathise, but you know what's it got to do with us? Whereas I get the feeling now, people realise it's not just between Russia and Ukraine. They realise that Mr Putin's actually assaulting the international rules-based order on which small and middle-sized countries throughout the world critically depend. Yeah, this so I, is, think, I, I think I think I uh, think there is a shift going on, uh, and um, Amer- it's different for America. America has always been number one most much of the post-war period. But I think for many other countries, they are beginning to see a linkage between the outcome of the war and whether their society will be able to um, function well afterwards.
0: I think you're right on that. On Monday, I asked the Prime Minister at the press conference whether New Zealand should send lethal aid to Ukraine. Uh, So far, it's only sent uh, flak jackets and uh, various um, other equipment. You could argue we don't have an awful lot of lethal aid or stinging missiles or anything, but we do have a few. You do. Um, and they're not very useful here right now. Right now, uh, And it's interesting that over the week, uh, and I also asked Christopher Lux in this question, and their initial responses were, well, I'm not sure that, you know, we could offer much help or that um, mm. uh, that's really necessary right now. But mm. as we've discovered at the end of the week, in Cabinet on Monday, uh, Penny Hillary, the defence minister, proposed sending lethal military aid to Ukraine. And um, the cabinet said no. But by the end of the week, we've also got Jerry Brownlee and Christopher Luxon yeah. from the opposition saying, hey, you guys, you know, I know it's just one or two stingers, or whatever it is, but we should send whatever stuff we've mm. got. And it's not like we're sending troops. The Ukrainians are the ones putting their lives on the line. Let's give them the stuff. And I sense that the mood is hardening as well. I just wanted to finish off this, um, this section with a question uh, for, for you all from your points of view. Um, firstly, Natalia, do, do you think the sanctions, we're on to our fifth round of sanctions now, are working really to stop or blunt the Russians?
4: I, I think people want sanctions to act immediately. Sanctions is a long-term tool. Uh, it's not going to work overnight there are already signs that certain industries are getting out of working regimes in russia people are fired there are difficulties but it's not yet big they said two three months so um it it, it will take months that's not what we want to hear we want immediate is it everything's just not working but it's not going to be like that plus we know that Um, there is still no decision on sanctions against the energy resources and specifically Mm -hmm. oil and gas. And these are because these are very sensitive moments for the economies of the Western countries. Mm -hmm. And then on the one hand, yes. On the other hand, if economic situation in the Western countries deteriorates in democratic societies, you might expect change of government in those societies and the changes might not necessarily be in favor Of Ukraine let's put this way so there's there are lots of difficult questions about these sort of big sanctions, but we are indeed progressing and, as you know, the European Union is talking about the coal sanctions about closing the ports for all Russian ships, as well as uh, severing the. Railroad connections effectively, transport blockade we're talking about, and we know about the US um, a decision on trade as well as on golden reserves on, on the Russian Federation. So it's here and here and here. And even New Zealand, as you know, today Russia has a retaliation against Australia and New Zealand. Hmm.
1: Yeah, it's I right. expected we're, us to be on there, Bernard. Yeah, but I was yeah. very disappointed I mean, to find I, that I, I wasn't on I had, on had a holiday list.
0: plan and everything. Yeah. No. Um, I think we'll it's,
1: it's, find Mr Abramov from the... Um, uh, the, the guy who has the Northland. has the resort in Northland um, pretty soon. Um, yeah. You know his his company would appear to supply to supply steel for Russian tanks. Elaine, with all of this stuff, Ukraine, uh, Czech tanks, Stinger missiles, the Switchblades, and everything, whatever whatever Biden and other people say, we are getting in. NATO is getting in deeper and deeper, isn't
2: it? Well, it certainly seems that way, and I think that you know I was just trying to sort of survey like you know, what is what are the US views of this? And I mean, there are certain ways in which, you know, voters are now in agreement about their opposition to Russia. But I think if there were, you know, any, like, the more there's an indication that NATO is getting more and more militarily involved, I suspect the more nervous American voters will become. Yeah. Um, Although they are currently in agreement that we don't like Russia. um, But they also don't like high
1: oil prices. Yeah.
2: Well, right, guess, exactly. right. Yeah. it's complicated. Well, look, thank
1: you so much, all of you. It's, it's, we haven't had um three academic before for, for very good reasons because we, we just like to talk bollocks without any uh people who really know what they're talking. But Robert's already changed that, Natalia's done it brilliantly. And Elaine, thank you so much for coming in at midnight. Um, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you shortly. Thank you, all everybody. And if we didn't get to any questions, I think we've covered most things. Mental health question that Mr. A asked me about. Yes, that is a huge issue for all of the people who review, uh, review this kind of material, including journalists, and there are specialist mental health groups that try to try to help with that, yeah. but it's a huge issue. Um, no, I don't think Putin can survive if Russia is rejected out of Ukraine. Would you agree, uh, Robert?
3: Putin yeah, can't- it, I think he's got a very important anniversary coming up on May the 9th, Victory yeah. Day, and I think his plan was to be able to claim a victory, and if he can't, I don't think he he will survive. No.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, and we're going to move to well, but, but sorry, Bernard, you take over. It's, it's oh, all yeah.
3: domestic now.
0: No, no. Th- thank, thank you very you, much, very, thank everybody. Thank it's really so sweet of you to do for that. Coming on board. You, it's, it's wonderful, and it's now great to bring into the conversation, Delipa Fonseca. You're, you're welcome
1: to stay on because Dalipa and Bernard are the experts. But Elaine, you're not allowed to comment on New Zealand house prices. Right.
0: There, there is some foreign affairs stuff coming, actually. Okay. Um, uh, we, um, yeah. uh, Delipa and I are uh, old colleagues uh, from Newsroom. Delipa is now a columnist and a senior reporter at Stuff in Auckland. Uh, and Delipa, I'm really pleased that you're able to come on to the show today um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, um, there are some huge things going on in our neighborhood, which hasn't hasn't had a lot of attention here, perhaps, which is the, the meltdown in uh, Sri Lanka's uh, uh, economic uh, and political uh, situation. Uh, you have family connections to uh, Sh- Sri Lanka and know the communities here and in Sri Lanka pretty well and we'll follow the news. Could you give us a summary for um, people who probably don't know the scene very well, what's, what's happened in the last couple of weeks?
5: Well, um, yeah, perhaps this is uh, one way of contextualising it, Um, especially for you two, who probably have um, something to say about it. Um, The way I kind of maybe summarise it is: imagine uh, New Zealand's nineteen eighty-four debt crisis, but instead of um, you know Muldoon having uh, you know on his way being on his way out, uh, he instead uh, is in there for another two years, and that is sort of the situation in. In Sri Lanka, you've got um, you know many of the same elements, uh, which is a massive foreign debt um, and low levels of foreign reserves, um, and it's all um, you know obviously denominated in um, in US dollars and uh, and other currencies. So it's not uh, you know there's no there's not a test case for MMT. Um, there's a uh, <laughs> there's a there's an almost I mean if you kind of you know, Sri Lanka's debt to GDP is kind of sitting at over 110% at the moment. And, um, you know, in 2019, it was basically a upper middle income country. That was the World Bank classified as that. So, oh, um, three right, years? yeah. Three wow. Yeah, yeah. And so in that time, um, now you have a situation where people can't get, any um, you know staple goods? There's no uh, electricity sometimes for only one hour a day in some in some instances. Um, you had uh, you know so and it's all because um, it's kind of a it's both a series of comical, semi-comical, and also you know uh, you know just bad luck events. So you know straight after 2019, you had COVID, which cut you know, tourism uh, and also sort of uh, a lot of the Middle Eastern things were sending some of the Sri Lankan workers back um, to Sri Lanka. So that can also cut off some remittances as well. Um, And so you had that uh, situation. And so tourism makes up about, you know, 20% of their foreign sort of reserves. Then the government did all it kind of seemingly could to make the situation worse. Um, So they decided to go 100% uh, organic um, almost overnight. Really? um yeah 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 um which which meant um so Sri Lanka was actually self-sufficient in its food so it was self-sufficient in rice um but in order to make the rice you needed uh you need fertilizer you needed to import um uh some things so after uh, and also you needed to import fertilizer for tea so after they made 100 organic they suddenly realized oh we have no uh, we have no organic fertilizers, um, so they actually ended up importing um, importing this organic fertilizer from China. Um, and uh, China is an important player in this story, of course Sri Lanka is an important geopolitical um, point. And I think actually this has some echoes of what we might see in the Pacific
1: in years to come. What do you think? Um, is a connection to Belt and Road?
5: Oh yeah, well this is this is I mean so. Uh, This, all of the debt that Sri Lanka has, a lot of it is taken out on massive infrastructure projects. So I'll give you an example, there was a Japanese, the Japanese were actually funding a light rail project in Colombo. And they had low, you know, low interest rate loans um, and then Sri Lanka cancelled this project uh, in favour of a four lane expressway uh, funded by the Chinese. (laughs) And a lot. And that's obviously very controversial because they said, oh, the, the um the expressway delivers more benefits than the, the light rail does. And obviously that's um coming under a bit of scrutiny now. Um and and so there, you know, they have taken out all these loans for all these white elephant awesome projects. The most high-profile one, I think the New York Times has done, um, you know, a, other uh, has done a story on this one about the Humbotter to top on the about port.
1: Mm-hmm. Um
5: and that port. Um, so you know they basically default on the debt and China basically took ownership of that port. And um, so they have a you know they have a port in Sri Lanka. Um, and, sen-
0: and it's a port that's a very strategic position because it's on the Indian uh, ocean side of Sri Lanka and essentially gives China the ability to project power across those key sea lanes from the Middle East across to Singapore. Is that
5: right? Yeah, string yeah. of pearls. It's a white elephant for um it's a white elephant for Sri Lanka Sri Lanka's already got a got a port but um, it gives China a foothold so it's an interesting um, you know strategic positioning there um, and then uh, you know so you had you had and uh, I mean the other example of this sort of uh, you know power imbalance, I guess is so they imported this I think what this fertilizer from China um, and then um, when they when it arrived uh, the Sri Lankan authorities checked it and discovered that um, the that it was actually unsafe um, that it had all this bacteria that could actually no. harm, um, various crops so then they refused that and it went to courts and then the court said no you can't you know they, they, they don't have to pay for it the guys who ordered it and that caused eruptions with the Chinas China's oh. banks So China actually for a period blacklisted the uh, People's Bank of Sri Lanka um, for for uh, uh, from uh, dealings with them, trying to prepare until this this thing was resolved.
0: Wow, uh, I hadn't I hadn't heard about this at all. No wonder. Yeah, yeah, you think it's trouble.
5: Um, it's it's uh, I, I'm not sure if you're allowed on um, in, the um, in, uh, but you probably guess what the is to, the, to what they've labelled this crisis. Um, um, so they, they have, um, they, they had that, that um, you know, that uh, ship full of um, uh, excrement and the wrong uh, port, and that, that issue. Um, and then in January, so all this time the government has been sort of trying to pay off these debts. So they've got about $7 billion US dollars of debts due this year, and they've got far less of that in foreign reserves. Um, uh, and um, so everybody thought January uh, that they were going to basically default on the loans effectively, uh, but instead they somehow managed to gather enough. They, they repaid it. So they used the well, little foreign reserves they had to repay this Debt, and you need those foreign reserves in order to import all this stuff, right? You need to, you need it in order to pay for, you know, fuel to pay for food, and yeah. um, especially if you're a country in, in the position that Sri Lanka was then in. Um, so that then drove uh, down their foreign reserves. So there was this curious situation where, uh, you know, they repaid the debt, and um, you will know how this works. Uh, effectively, you repay the debt, and your credit rating goes down because. <laughs> so <laughs> when you do it like that. So <laughs> this was this very um, and and then also the exchange rate, like in New Zealand, eighty four uh, was actually fixed. So yeah. they only actually devalued. They only actually um, uh, devalued it uh, about a month ago. So from that time, so that's about March seventh, I think. From that time to about now, I think it's basically. Uh, depreciated in value of fifty percent. Uh, Sri Lanka rupee against the US
0: <laughs> So, so that has blown out inflation, which is probably already a problem in Sri Lanka.
5: Yeah, so I think inflation for food was running at about twenty-five um, wow. well, percent, which is significant.
1: Lifa, and- before you do housing, it's interesting to me that I, I was just reading the, or listening to a very good BBC thing today about Imran mm. Khan's difficulties in Pakistan, and apart from the usual nonsense with the military and the ISI there is a huge upswelling of public concern about the price of basic commodities because of COVID, because of the Russians. And Bernard and I were just talking before, there's a story today about huge uh, protests in Peru over the same thing. It's not, it's gonna be very interesting in these countries that are living on a kind of, um, you know, margin, in, a, in a sense, marginal self, ma- marginal, um, uh, marginal agric- not just agricultural economists, but we, we've got a high mm. dependency on, on imports, high dependency on fuel, and very little elasticity in the working population, particularly when you lose overseas remittances.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point yeah. about the remittances. Yeah. I mean, the Philippines is another one where they are um, you know, uh, exposed to rising energy and food prices. And the, the other thing that's interesting, because of the Ukraine-Russia war, uh, more than uh, two-thirds of the sunflower oil uh, in the world that they exported comes out of there, is stopped. Uh, more than a third of the wheat exports have stopped, and most of those wheat exports were supposed to go to Egypt and uh, Turkey and I think it was Lebanon or um, Jordan. And uh, so there's a risk here that we have all of these countries which are a little bit wobbly to start with, and then you have a, a shock of
1: well, remember the you know the the, the Egyptian Arab Spring. Yeah. Start started with bread prices it's a very interesting thing speaking of bread and circuses do you want to get onto housing
0: oh absolutely well
1: there's
5: one other amusing connection to this ukraine russia thing with them um, with sri lanka which is actually the plan for reviving the tourism uh, industry in sri lanka uh and <laughs> was to and uh, basically they started up flights um with uh guess what country Oh um, no. The Ukraine. Uh, so oh. the first pilot of this project to um, bring in tourists was with Ukraine and they, they started basically I think during the pandemic. Ukraine and Russia have been the top two countries uh, with inbound tourism to Sri Lanka. So this crisis has gone doubly, uh, <laughs> double effects for um, them. The backup plan has also failed.
0: That, that is um, just a, a, a cavalcade of disasters for Sri Lanka and just to uh, give a sense of the situation, my understanding is that um, was it the finance minister had been fired four times and um, the, the the president and the prime minister were, were brothers and hanging each other's guts? Or what was the deal there?
5: Entire cabinet resigned. Um, then also, uh, they had appointed a finance minister. He resigned after a day. Um, and there are, uh, I mean, his. Uh, his popularity I think by some I think there's an international polling firm that uh, you know he came to he came to power not that long ago uh, as president got to buyer uh, and he uh, his popularity is now sitting at eight percent apparently. 8%, which is quite a, quite a fall. Um, and, I mean, there are other issues there. There are all kinds of allegations about what has happened. At a point, their family controlled about 70% effectively because of the ministries that were under their control and things. 70% of the Sri Lankan uh, economy. So there are questions about, uh, well, what's happened with some of the money? And um, I think actually the Pandora Papers mentioned um, that uh, in, uh, in one instance, they alleged that... Um, that, the Raj, that a part of that Rajbax family had actually started to trust in New Zealand um, after the uh, after 2012, um, and um, and then moved that to um, and then uh, moved whatever was in there to the Cook Islands um, after that. And so I guess there's potential implications for New Zealand later on around what's going to happen when you know Sri Lanka or other nations start looking at where you know if they start getting you know, where did some of this money go.
0: It's so sad because it's such a um... It could be, it could be such a, a rich, vibrant place, um, but it keeps getting hammered. You had that war, and then the tsunami. Now this, it's awful. Um, now, uh, on another, speaking of rich um, and vibrant um, places, rich and vibrant places. Yes, um, <laughs> yeah. New Zealand's amazing housing market. I was one of the reasons I was very keen to get mm-hmm. DeLeper on this week, is because Dalipa managed to do something really special, which is to put a very in-depth, quite technical, academic type paper about uh, uh, housing and infrastructure and zoning rules onto this front page of the Dominion Post, a big splash. This is a paper from Peter Nuns at the Infrastructure Commission, which looked at how house prices had changed over the last 80 years or so and matched it up with what had happened to zoning for uh, housing capacity, particularly in Auckland over the last 50 or 60 years and looked also at the congestion times, the the commuting times, to essentially work out what would have happened to house prices if there hadn't been massive downzonings of uh, housing capacity in Auckland and other cities through the uh, 60s, 70s, 80s, and into the 90s, and and also if um, there'd been proper investment in public transport infrastructure and motorways to avoid a big slowdown in traffic, which meant that house prices in the central areas became much more expensive. Um, Dalipa, could you give us uh, uh, a sense of, of uh, you know, how important you think this paper was, and you know, how did you get Anna filters to stick it on the front page? <laughs>
5: Well, um, it's uh, yeah, it's funny because I, I interviewed Timonan, um, and I'm not sure that he uh, he realised that it was potentially going to be on the front page of the post the next day uh, when he was speaking about his academic paper. Um, this, I think, what was impressive, most impressive about this paper was how um, it effectively went through all of the other arguments. Interest rates, um, you, you know, uh, it was on kind of interest rates to, you know, availability of capital. And um, I was actually quite impressed in, in, um, at how we effectively dismissed, you know, a, a lot of it and, you know, with good reason um, and population growth as well, which is the other. Other element of it, and um, effectively, you know, so that a population's been growth has been higher, interest rates have been lower, um, and we've still built more. So what happened here? And and he zoned it. he, He zoomed it right into down zoning um and uh i can't claim um you know too much credit for the uh for the placement that is all you know i think anna Fifield and her commitment to um putting the wellington housing crisis um on the front page um and you know arguably it should be in the front page in auckland as well um
0: oh yeah i mean the the new zealand herald um should have put that on the front page to really get its um advertisers uh, um, uh reading the paper, um, about my estimate. And again, it's just an estimate from a distance. is about 30 to 40%. Is it true of... that
1: they're changing their uh, real estate column to, to from one roof to no roof? <laughs> <laughs> <Very
0: good. laughs> yeah. Oh, um, a roof of gold. Yeah, uh, no, but about thirty to forty percent of their revenues, I think, come from real estate agents and the real estate industry generally. So um, maybe sh- maybe that's why it wasn't on the front page of the, the New Zealand Herald. Delipa,
1: you've picked up on a really interesting theme that I've heard only Bernard Hickey talk about, other than some chap who, who accused me yesterday on Twitter of being left left wing and woke, which of course nothing could be further from the truth. But that's about intergenerational theft. Bernard, yeah. Bernard talks a lot about that. I mean you're of a slightly younger generation to us in all sense. How do you feel about us and everybody everybody before us taking everything before it comes down to you?
5: Yeah, well, that was also the most, I think one of the most interesting parts of that paper was that I effectively narrowed it down to one generation I tried to get to people and ask, well, you know, who is this generation that suddenly were able to vote in the, 19, the late 1970s? And, and he wouldn't quite go that far as playing with yeah, anybody. Yeah. And, uh, but See, that would have been a
0: great headline. Infrastructure Commission blames boomers.
1: Yeah, not okay. Yeah, not okay, boomer. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Um, and and it really fits in nicely also with the research that the guys at Sense Partners did uh, Mm. with PwC uh, in the um, regulatory impact statement for the the um, uh, three-storey townhouse nation uh, change that went through at the end of last year, in which they actually you know worked out uh, what the potential uh, improvement in house prices would there would be if this three-storey, three-home-per-section uh, uh, change went through. Essentially, by implication, saying that there had been this much transfer of wealth mm. from uh, future and present uh, renters to existing uh, landholders. And what, what also struck me about that paper was how... It went back before the RMA. You know, the RMA gets a lot of blame for the downzoning, the restrictions on uh, new um, housing supply, particularly uh, land available for housing. But what Peter had, had done was was look at what had happened in the sixties and the seventies. Now, um, Peter Bale, you, you're probably talking to us from uh, down there in the. Um, the most expensive postcode in the well, country. In the
1: badlands of Herne Bay, yep. yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: <laughs> the wasteland there the... where there's tumbleweed, you know, and, and it looks like Detroit down here now. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, but you know, when you come from the CBD mm-hmm. to Herne Bay, there's those huge towers on the corner of Jervois Road um, on the ridge there, two of them, and then there's another one that's similar to it in Renuera, which went up in the early 70s. And essentially, once those ones went up, everyone in the council in Auckland looked at each other and said, never again, we're going to stick to Villa Height. And um, that struck me. Also, his line that in the 1960s, Auckland actually had enough land zoned for five times the population Mm. at that point. But rapidly down. Well, think big.
1: Think big with Robbie, yeah, or with Muldoon. But but there's an interesting. I I I, you and I have discussed this um thing about the ridgelines, which are now being developed in Auckland in a much more substantial way. Mm -hmm. Having had that period, it it also happened in Wellington. Um, I I know nothing has been built in Wellington since about since about you know since they built a shed out of the front uh, of the Aurora, but um, in uh, Eastbourne there is a. I can't call it a skyscraper. I think it's about eight stories high, a place called Rona House. Yeah. Which is an extremely nice my my mother-in-law, in fact, lives there, and it's an extremely nice development. Uh and it was the it was envisaged by a counselor at that time who who organized this development. He'd been to Copacabana Beach in that's Brazil. Right. And 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 the idea of, you know, turning Eastbourne into Copacabana was oh, was Cobra, right behind C- that. That's right. Co- you can Cobra. just imagine it. You could right. just, and but, actually, it would be a it would be a great place, great place to live there. Not um, Miami on the
0: sea. It was Miami Mountain. on
1: sea at Eastbourne. Yeah, and unfortunately, there was only one ever built. When I say unfortunately, I'm sure the people with all of those lovely bungalows and uh, batches that have turned into multi million dollar houses in uh, in Eastbourne, um, you know, are glad that they weren't demolished 30 years ago. But you know, it's it's a problem all around.
0: And uh, the other piece that uh, Dalipa did this week, which I really enjoyed, was his column uh, published in the Wednesday um, Dominion Post and and Press, which was a piece looking at what we call the MUDs, the Metropolitan Urban Districts. This idea that's been imported from Texas into New Zealand, by which um, brand new, you could call them urban authorities, are created, often on the fringes of town which have the ability to issue their own debt and fund infrastructure for new suburbs. And this um, idea, uh, which has come out of Treasury and has been um, championed by a couple of people behind the scenes there, uh, essentially turned into the Infrastructure Funding and Financing Act of two years ago, in which the government created the environment for uh, people, including developers and some councils to get together to create these new vehicles to issue debt which would then apply targeted rates to the residents of those new suburbs to pay for the um, water and other infrastructure. This is all designed so that the government and the council don't have to borrow money on their balance sheets to build the infrastructure. But Dalipa, tell us um, what's actually happened in the last couple of years.
5: Well, in short, basically very little. Um, I mean, it seems that they, so no, no SPV has been signed off by the minister um, under this act, and there are about three that look like they might by the end of the year, potentially, but they have to get sign off before they can go out for funding. So this is the period before, you know, all the contracts are kind of made and that kind of thing. Um, and so uh, I think that the three are, apparently some wastewater project, a trans- uh, transport project, um, and, and some kind of greenfield development. And uh, from looking around the councils, uh, I sort of discovered, I guess, that Hamilton is planning to, you know, um, go for one for a greenfield sort of uh, development, which they were already building, actually. Um, so they're using that as a way of basically shifting... Council, you know, uh, shifting the money around so that they the council can pay for development in another suburb um, because they can't make an SPV out of that one, uh, and the um, and and the and the Wellington one is a there's um, not a housing development really. It's a it's a sludge plant which much needed. (laughs) I thought that
1: was a housing development in Wellington. (laughs) Which may may enable
5: some some housing, uh, which may enable housing, uh, which probably, you know, enable housing and probably needed for it. But, um, you know, it's not, we're not talking massive subdivision, new new subdivision or anything like that. Um, And uh, then I guess there's some sort of um, transport project uh, somewhere potentially in Tauranga, I'm not sure. Um, So the... I think that the issue is that this is kind of uh, I, I guess my kind of take on it the column was that this has kind of been kiwiified. Um, this this Texas this Texas this Texas idea is a gung ho developer just go out there set up the you know they grab some rural land. They get the up, they effectively get the up value, uh, uptick from the converting that rural land into you know housing, um, and then they just fund the you know they fund the uh, the, the infrastructure they fund, they fund the housing um, you know almost from scratch. Whereas this is sort of we've kind of turned into more of a vehicle to allow councils to take on slightly more debt under some circumstances, and I think that is essentially. Um, the problem, uh, we've kind of changed this into something that it's kind of not. And I'm not sure exactly, uh, I guess my argument, was, well, what are we actually um, achieving if it's not, um, you know, if it's not more, you know, thousands of more houses?
0: Nothing. That's, in my view, the Infrastructure Funding and Finance Act was a Treasury-driven distraction uh, from the basic need of the government and councils to use their balance sheets to build infrastructure for past population growth and future population growth, and then um, service the debt and smear the cost over the next 50, 100 years, as you should do with debt. But the obsession with Treasury of keeping the net debt of the country as a whole at 20 to 30 percent in the long run, and also controlling councils' ability to raise debt so that um, they never endanger uh, the crown, effectively reduce the sovereigns. Uh, uh, credit rating, and it's all really about Auckland here because um, if Auckland was to use its balance sheet properly to deal with Auckland's growth, it would have a lower credit rating. Um, and this debate about whether that would mean New Zealand's credit rating would drop—I'm
1: sure Leo Malloy will sort everything out in Auckland. Oh boy, <laughs> no
0: he's,
1: he's he's the man of the future.
0: Yeah, no, and 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 the guts of it is that a treasury-driven uh, um, need it felt to stop councils and governments from borrowing and get private vehicles to do it um, has led to nothing happening. And the usual problem, which is that um, we invite lots of people in to live here and work for relatively low wages and and not build the infrastructure for them. And we end up with very high house prices, which makes median voters very happy because they're not having to pay tax on the capital gains. And um, bankers are happy. Uh, politicians of both major parties are happy. Uh, Treasury is happy because it thinks it solved a debt problem. But the people who live in these houses and pay rent, or are trying to get into their own homes, um, have found themselves on the wrong side of this um, doctrinaire decision. That's my particular um, rant. and um, oh, I
1: think that needs to go into the carca uh, tomorrow verbatim. Oh, it is actually
0: <laughs> a good point, and and <laughs> I I appreciated the reporting work that Delipa had done to work out exactly where we were with this process, and just highlighting to the public that because um, this was the the great white hope, so to speak, of infrastructure uh, financing a couple of years ago, and it has every led to party,
5: every party voted for it. I mean, this is this is yeah a, um, right. Every party voted for this this bill this was uh, and actually every time that uh, you know you'll remember bernard and you know i definitely every time that you'd raise hey what about why don't you give the councils a bit more money or why don't you you know do this career the money it was always well iff is coming and that is gonna solve all these funding issues so it's time to
0: call bullshit on the IFF, which I am happy to do. And, and we'll do, we'll do an, a big juicy column next week, pointing back to your article, which I've included in the comment stream there. Hey, I wanted to wrap it up now because we've blown our time completely. And I really appreciate, I'm, Dilipa, you coming on board. I think it's very kind of s-
1: 69 people to have stayed on, actually. Wow, it's amazing. I'm, su- I'm surprised that Robert Patman didn't come in, though, to, get to con- contribute on housing.
0: <laughs> well, Dunedin has a um, housing affordability problem, too, now, which is a problem. Hey, uh, Delipa thank you so much. Peter, wonderful. Oh, to um uh thank do you. The and, again and Delipa, for... we
1: we tried to get mrs 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 Delipa to come in but you know she <laughs> she said we had she, she was already booked I'm not sure that I can take your fa- your family uh having two media stars in it next week next week <laughs> yeah
5: yeah next week
0: <laughs>
1: double willing and thank thanks. you thanks everybody for thank for, you very much for coming on
0: Ka kite no, and we'll see you all next week bye bye